This is Democracy, a podcast about the people of the United States, a podcast about citizenship, about engaging with politics and the world around you, a podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues and how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This Is Democracy. This week, we are going to discuss the legacies of the Civil War and other elements of our past that deeply influence our current difficulties with democracy in the United States. How does understanding the Civil War and its legacies help us to better understand our current predicament? And how does it help us to think about new measures and mechanisms for addressing the needs of our democracy today? That will be the subject of our conversation. It happens to be the subject of my new book, Civil War by Other Means, America's Long and Unfinished Fight for Democracy. This book has just been published. I spent many years working on it, and I am very happy that today we get to talk about it in this episode, and we'll have maybe one more episode on it for our podcast. And uh, I'm even happier that Mr. Zachary Suri is going to serve as the interviewer. We're going to turn things around today. And he is going to interview me. In fact, a number of our loyal listeners have emailed me and texted me to ask that we do this. So, Zachary, are you ready to play this role? Uh, yes. H- how hard could it be? <laughs> oh, I think you relish the opportunity to put me in the hot seat. Before we do that, though, Zachary is, of course, going to read an original poem for us today. And before he reads this poem, I must reveal to our audience that Zachary is now the Austin Youth Poet Laureate, which is to say he has been selected as the youth to uh, manifest and represent the possibilities of poetry to our entire community. Zachary, this is a big honor, one that's richly deserved, as all of our listeners to your poetry know. And uh, I just want you to know how proud I am of you. Congratulations. Thank you. How does it feel? It feels good. Yeah. Lots of work to do still, what what kind of work? Well, more poems to write. Yes. Uh, more work in the community. Et cetera. All right. Well, let's see what you can do. What's the, the title of today's poem? Every Season Goes. Let's hear it. At moments when the orchards bloom, the harvest mixed with bullets, and the apples bruised fall down bloodied mountains, make them into cider, make them into cider. But don't think that in a lean-to in a forest far from us, you will escape the pull of memory. When the orchards bloom, when winter wind pulls them back again to barrenness, we must, each time, when every season goes, once again remember. It was the winter of our discontent, then it was the spring that ended many springs, for many the last they'd ever see. And even in April, it was fall. In April 1865, it was all falling. They were fallen. It was the summer of our wildest misjudgments. At moments when the orchards bloom, do not think you have to wait. Do not think that a century hence you must stay, chained to, enchanted with the lying ghosts. There are cherry trees budding somewhere else, other orchards, other dreams. Do not think you have won, because only sometimes you find a cannonball in your pink carnations, because only sometimes you remember the truth. 
It was the winter of our discontent, but it was also the summer we disappeared. This was the spring to end all springs, but on top of the hills, barren, overlooking a scorched earth, scorched people, marching to a promised land, we were, somehow, for them, invisible. Others saw us far too clearly. And at moments when the orchards bloom, do not think in vain of leaving, or hold dearly to how the world seemed when you were five, and supposed the world to end at a coffin, and held history to be, somehow, an apple you could never taste. I, I really love the range of uh, emotions in that poem, Zachary. What is that poem about? I think this poem was really about the ways in which the history of the Civil War in particular, um, but also all of American history, are all around us. Um, even when orchards are blooming and they seem hidden or, or the violence can seem so far away. Uh, but that at the same time, there is hope in uncovering that history and recognizing that history and in choosing to remember. Right, and how an autumn of discontent can become a summer of possibility. I, mm -hmm. I love that, Zachary. Well, the floor is yours. You you can ask the questions uh, of me, and, and I hope our listeners will enjoy this conversation and, and will buy the book, too. Civil War by Other Means, mm -hmm. America's Long and Unfinished Fight for Democracy. Zachary, tell us what we should think about. My first question has to deal uh, directly with the first two chapters of your book, uh, which uh, take place uh, in April 1865, uh, which comes up directly in the poem I just read. Uh, in particular, uh, of course, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln by John Wilkes Booth. Um, and my question for you is that many scholars before you, and including yourself, have chosen uh, to focus and, and to write extensively on the North's reverence for Lincoln after his death and his sort of semi-martyrdom, uh, particularly that famous funeral train from Washington to Springfield. Uh, but in your new book, you posit a sort of parallel martyrdom uh, for his assassin, John Wilkes Booth in the South. Uh, what does this insight tell us about the early years of Reconstruction? And do you see this dual martyrdom as somehow continuing to this day? It's a great question, Zachary. And you're absolutely right. Um, Lincoln's assassination makes him a saint in the memory and iconography uh, for many people in the North and, and other parts of the country. Uh, but what I wasn't aware of until I did this research and until you helped me with this research were the ways in which uh, there was a parallel martyrdom for John Wilkes Booth. Um, he was seen as a, a great hero by many, uh, not just in the South, not just in the former Confederacy. And this took many forms. There were all sorts of newspapers in Texas, Georgia, Tennessee, elsewhere, that wrote after the assassination of this as a conspiracy by Republicans that they had killed Lincoln and Blaine Booth. Or more commonly, the conspiracy was that Lincoln was about to unleash a worse set of crimes and that Booth knew about this and was stopping him from doing that. Uh, one way or another, the blame was placed on the victim, Lincoln, rather than on the assassin. And there were many, many articles, many of which we quote in the book, uh, that discuss um, the uh, ways in which Booth is seen as a hero. Uh, by Confederate supporters. Why is he seen as a hero? Not just because he killed Lincoln, but because he's seen as standing up to Yankee power, to uh, Union power. What does this tell us? Uh, I write in the book about how this captures a very different sensibility, not just an anger at losing on the battlefield, but a determination to continue the struggle and to continue to 
support individuals uh, who will stand up against what is still seen by millions of Americans as illegitimate union power in the South. And the, the real deeper point, I think, is that you have two diametrically opposed visions of democracy, a northern Republican vision, which is not inclusive of everyone, but believes that a larger democracy with more participants, particularly former slaves participating in some way, will be a better democracy, uh, in part because it will limit the power of former Confederates. And you have former Confederates and many sympathizers who sympathize with Booth and believe that a smaller democracy with less participation is necessary to protect their power. And in that sense, Lincoln is a threat, even in his death, to the power of many Southern whites and their supporters, including in places like New York. And Booth is standing up in their eyes for protecting their power and limiting, intimidating, bullying those who would try to expand democracy and therefore dilute the power of these existing groups. So they're competing visions of democracy and they're competing over the question of who has say and who doesn't. Hmm. Now, one of your chapters in the new book that I think is 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 the most groundbreaking, if you will, or at least for me, uh, one of the most fascinating and eye-opening and coincidentally the one that I got to help the most with uh, when it came to the research. Quite a coincidence there. Yeah, is, 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 is your chapter on Confederate exiles in Mexico uh, and their route through Texas, including here in Austin, to the court of the French-imposed Mexican emperor uh, Maximilian I. Um, and I, I know from helping you with a lot of this research that most of this, the writing on this topic has been a sort of triumphalist Confederate biography. Um, what made these exiles stand out to you as historical figures uh, worthy of inclusion in this right study? Well, and, and these are figures who are mostly ignored. Uh, right. I was talking to a close friend who has written one of the most used textbooks in the United States. And uh, he said he has to now rewrite part of the textbook because these, these individuals are not mentioned at all, and they turn out to be pretty important, uh, and important for a number of reasons that I'll get to in a second. Let's just first talk about who they are. These are uh, Confederate military leaders. Many of them had civilian jobs before. They're not like Robert E. Lee. They're not people who were trained as professional military officers. They're judges, uh, local business people, often large slave owners. Law enforcement. Law enforcement in many cases, absolutely local law enforcement. And uh, at, after Appomattox, they refused to surrender. Uh, usually in our textbooks, we tell the story, the Civil War ends at Appomattox, and then begrudgingly, all of these Confederate leaders lay down their arms, or at least go home with their arms, but they leave the battlefield. That's true for many, but certainly not for all. Um, there are upwards of 50,000 of these individuals who go to Mexico. There's an even larger number that go to Brazil, others who go elsewhere. The individuals I focus on are generals in the Confederate Army, people like Joseph Shelby, John Bankhead Magruder, and Alexander Watkins Terrell. Uh, and these are individuals who decide that they're going to go to Mexico and bring their soldiers with them voluntarily, if the soldiers want to come. They're also going to bring their slaves with them to Mexico. And they're going to join forces with Emperor Maximilian. And it's worth saying something about Emperor Maximilian. He is appointed, he's a relative of Louis Napoleon, the nephew of Napoleon who had sold the Louisiana Territory to the United States. And uh, Louis Napoleon has decided that he wants to take back the French Empire in 
North America, and he wants to begin in Mexico by installing Maximilian, who's actually an Austrian relative of his. So he installs this emperor who was fighting a civil war in Mexico uh, against the Mexican Republicans under Benito Juarez, who have actually had support from Lincoln and others. These Confederates join the Napoleon-allied imperial monarchical government in Mexico. Why do they do this? Uh, They want to keep their slaves. Mexico does not have slavery, but it allows them to create indentured servant contracts, 20-year labor contracts or so, with their slaves, forcing them to work basically without pay for 20 years. They provide them with land. And also there's the hope, this is what they say, and I quote and describe in the book, these exiles believe that by going to Mexico, they'll be able to reorganize and then fight again and take back their territory uh, in the American South uh, and elsewhere. So they join Maximilian's army. They become officers in his army. So that is the textbook definition of treason, to join a foreign army. They've already seceded, which some would call treason. Now they're joining uh, a foreign army. Uh, what, what makes them so important, Zachary, is not only that they do this, it shows us the resistance, the level of desire not to surrender. But when Maximilian loses, when he's assassinated by uh, Benito Juarez and his government collapses and Napoleon takes his forces back to France uh, and Juarez becomes the the Republican government, becomes the government of uh, Mexico, these exiles mostly return to the United States and they declare themselves heroes. And they're pardoned by President Andrew Johnson, who succeeds Lincoln after his assassination. Many of these exiles then become people of power in the South because they're seen as heroes. They're seen as stalwart defenders of the Southern way, even though they were really treasonous men who refused to follow the law and joined a foreign army. One of them, who I profile in particular, Alexander Watkins Terrell, He comes back to Texas, gets elected to the state legislature, becomes a Democratic leader in the state legislature. He writes the legislation to create the University of Texas at Austin, our sponsor for this podcast, uh, in 1883. And he also writes the voting laws in Texas. And uh, the voting laws he creates remain on the books through the mid-20th century. Guess who doesn't get to vote under these voting laws? He also creates the white primary. Uh, From the late 19th century through 1944, until a Supreme Court decision in 1944, the uh, Democratic Party in Texas, which is the only party really that has any chance of getting people elected at that time, uh, has a primary for its candidates every election year, and it does not allow non-whites to vote in its primary. So even though some non-whites can vote in the general election, they can't vote in the primary, uh, and the argument was that it was that that the Democratic Party was a private entity, so it didn't have to let everyone vote. So uh, until 1944, thanks to Alexander Watkins Terrell, this former exile treasonous individual who comes back because of the laws he wrote, uh, non-white people don't even get to choose the candidates who run for office in Texas. So why is this important? These exiles, um, they come back and remain powerful individuals. They set the course of part of our nation uh, because they're pardoned and because people wanted to move on. Yeah. Rather than and, prosecute them for their crimes. And now we have a county in Texas named after Terrell. That's correct. And we have many things. Uh, there there were statues to many of these figures. Uh, there still are some in some areas, but there were many statues of them around the country until recently. 
Right, and and they they came to represent the United States. Uh, Terrell was uh, ambassador pluripotentate or something like that to uh, the Ottoman Empire. That's correct. Point. He yeah. was appointed by Democratic President Grover Cleveland for his work on behalf of the Democratic Party. Uh, he was appointed to be ambassador to uh, the Ottoman Empire. Yeah, well, uh, on, on that note, I, I, I did want to ask, I think the book takes a very sort of Texas approach to understanding the Civil War, which is is, is rather unique uh, considering that Texas, in terms of population and, and, and maybe in terms of where the major battles were fought, uh, is often uh, left out of major histories of this period. Um, one of the aspects of this history, this Texas perspective on the Civil War, I think, is that connection to the Mexican resistance to French rule. And I did want to ask, do you see in some way this history of Mexican resistance to Maximilian as a sort of parallel story to the end of the Civil War, uh, not only helpful in understanding Reconstruction, but also maybe as a sort of counterexample of what could have happened if the promises of Reconstruction had been fulfilled? Uh, such a smart question, Zachary, and I think it's spot on. Um, and I don't think it occurred to me until I was really into the writing. Uh, for those who haven't written a book, and I hope everyone listening will write a book soon, uh, you learn a lot as you're writing the book. It's not as if you do the research and then write. You write and continue researching. Uh, and it became clear to me that this was not a story of only one side. This was a story with many sides to it. So just as I have a chapter that profiles the courageous uh, African-Americans, many former slaves who joined the Union Army, and the enormous difference that they make, uh, their legacy is also a part of our legacy. Uh, There is the legacy of those on the other side of the border, so to speak, uh, Mexican Republicans around Benito Juarez and others, who were trying, like their Republican counterparts, some of them, black and white, on the northern side of the border, these in Mexico, these Republicans were trying to create a more democratic society, a more representative society. They were trying to reappropriate land resources. They were trying to create uh, freedoms and protections for individual liberties in Mexico. And they had a kindred spirit in Abraham Lincoln. Benito Juarez and Abraham Lincoln had quite a correspondence. I quote some of it. Uh, Many of our listeners might be interested. You can look it up online and read. Lincoln could not give a lot of support to the Republicans in Mexico because he was fighting a civil war here, but he did where he could give them support and and encouragement. And what they represented, as you said so well, Zachary, was that this was a moment of possibility for a more participatory democracy on both sides of the Rio Grande. And it didn't happen on our side because of the resistance – and insufficient commitment uh, by Northern uh, Republicans and resistance from Southern Democrats in the United States and others. And it didn't happen in Mexico because of the violence and confusion, but in some ways the Mexicans did achieve more than we did in this period. You could argue that they had a system that actually had uh, a wider measure of land ownership and political participation than in the United States, or, or at least in parts of the United States, thanks to their revolution which went further than the victory of the Union did in the Civil War. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you mentioned in, in your answer there the uh, importance of African-American soldiers in the Union Army. And I, I did want to ask the, uh, about this exactly because I think it's often lost in our discussion of Reconstruction. It's not just the critical role that African-American soldiers played in the Union victory. Um, and in the Confederate defeat, but uh, the critical role they played after Reconstruction in occupying the South, in many cases occupying their own hometowns, home home states. My question for you is, uh, how important uh, 
were these soldiers in in shaping Reconstruction in the South, um, and what role did uh, African American soldiers play in at least uh, bringing uh, some semblance of economic and social mobility to communities of uh, formerly enslaved people? So the transformation of uh, thousands of slaves, not only into free citizens, but now into Union soldiers, was one of the most radical, disorienting changes that I think we've ever seen in North America. And that's not to say it was sufficient, uh, but it is to say, nonetheless, it was radical and disorienting. Uh, Just imagine uh, if you are a white plantation owner uh, in the 1850s and 60s, uh, you have these individuals on your plantation who you view as subhuman, and everyone around you in your circle views them as subhuman. Of course, that's horrible, but that's the reality of what people thought. And then very soon, within a matter of months during the Civil War, they become individuals who not only have a claim no longer to be slaves, but they are carrying muskets and wearing a Union uh, uniform. And by the end of the war, as you said so correctly, Zachary, they're in the they're the role of police, of occupiers, and in many cases, they're holding white prisoners. One of the things that triggered John Wilkes Booth to assassinate Lincoln was witnessing uh, African-American soldiers in the Union Army guarding white prisoners of war in Washington, D.C. This was the world turned upside down uh, for him and for so many others. These African-American soldiers uh, went through an extraordinary transformation. Uh, Most of them were illiterate when they entered the Union Army. They became literate in the Union Army. They gained a wage for the first time. I show in the book a few photos of these African-American soldiers, and you can see in the photos the pride they have in being slaves no more, and now not just being citizens, but actually being wage earners. And this was the Republican vision, free labor, free soil, free men. All men should be able to work, own land, and earn a wage, right? Freedom through wage ownership. ownership. And they, um, these, these former slaves also become uh, not just the force for union enforcement in the South in many areas, but they become the basis for an entirely new economy. Uh, running businesses, uh, running churches, of course, and in many cases trying to buy land, though that's often a difficult thing for them to do, and that's one of the areas where there's the most resistance to their to their influence. Um, it changes the texture of what the United States is fundamentally, and it's it's a it's an enormous victory. Few other societies have gone through that kind of transformation as rapidly as we did. It explains, on the one hand the rise of a vibrant civil rights activism in American history and American society that has never been lost. It also explains um, the strong resistance, violent resistance to these changes occurring at that time. And that's also never been lost. Look at the violence today, the violence against change within our society. Hmm. But also I think it's a reminder of the critical role um, that uh, government institutions like the military can play in in promoting social and economic mobility, not just within a context of of the Civil War, but also throughout American history and, and to this day. Right on. I mean, I think it's uh, undeniable that the institution over time that has done more uh, at being the cutting edge, the leading 
spear for civil rights change has been the U.S. Army. That doesn't mean the U.S. Army has been free from racism. It hasn't been free from that. That doesn't mean it has always treated different groups fairly, and it doesn't mean it has been enlightened in all cases. It has not. But time and again, at critical moments, it has been the Army that is the first place that new groups who have been excluded can break into American society, and it's for a very obvious reason. In times of war and other kinds of conflict, the U.S. Army needs bodies, and they need those bodies to be trained sustainable and self-supporting, which is to mean that they need to be trained and educated, they need to earn money, and they need to be able to govern themselves in a sense. So this is true definitely during the Civil War. That's what the Emancipation Proclamation is all about. Lincoln bringing in this uh, former slave force into the Union Army to provide more labor for the Union cause. It's what happens in World War II with African-American soldiers, Jewish soldiers. So many Jews uh, become Americanized. Henry Kissinger is one of them. I wrote a whole book on him years ago. They become Americanized and get their first opportunity as full Americans or close to full Americans in the U.S. Army. They, they're eating ham for Uncle Sam. Uh, and in a sense, the African-American soldiers, the former slaves in many cases, um, th they are fighting to end slavery and to give themselves uh, a chance in American society. And the army is the only place that can do that. But how did the, the United States military, but also the United States government, fail these soldiers and these communities? I mean, it's heartbreaking it to is. read in your book about uh, the uh, long-fought-for successes of African-American soldiers and their families, uh, and then to read uh, in in the following chapters about uh, the uh, so-called Memphis riot and and the Colfax massacre, um, this violence uh, against not just African American soldiers but uh, relatively new and relatively prosperous African American communities throughout the South, but also in the North, uh, was met with very little resistance from the federal government, um, and 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 uh, in, especially um, in the years following Reconstruction. And why why is this? Why do you think the United States military and the United States government failed them? It's the crucial question to ask. And I think these communities were failed right. by the federal government. I think you're, you're, you're spot on in your question. And I describe in the book uh, what happens in Memphis, for example, in 1866, in Colfax, Louisiana, in 1873. Uh, these are two of many cases where local communities of uh, white citizens, and they're not just white uh, local yokels. Uh, these include local sheriffs, local judges. They violently attack African-American communities, not only to steal their land, raping, mass rapes of women and children, forced humiliation, torture. Uh, and I'm only scratching the surface here. I mean, true cruelty uh, in the worst sense of the word. And, 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 and why is that? Why are they doing this? Because they feel so threatened by these communities, and it's a way of bullying. It's not just doing something to those in Memphis, this African-American community that is, that is devastated. Uh, it's not taking over the government in Colfax, which is what happened. It's a coup uh, against an African-American local government. Um, it's not just about that. It's about sending a message to so many others. It's about intimidation. It's about bullying. It's about asserting white male privilege. That's what we have to call it, white male privilege. Why does the federal government fail to stop this? 
for a variety of reasons I talk about in the book, and I'm not the only one to write about this. Uh, I think there are a couple of things that have to be said. First of all, it's really hard, really hard to stop this. Why is it hard to stop this? Because so many people are complicit. So many people are responsible for the violence, the rapes, uh, but so many others just want to look away. They don't want to do anything about it. And many of those who want to look away, and I talk about this in detail in the book, are Northern Republicans who don't like what's happening, but they don't want to get involved. They want to spend their money in other things. They're tired of fighting. They want to go West. They want to go West. They want to invest their money in the West to make money in the railroads. Uh, Richard White has written a wonderful book about the history of railroads, and there's so much money to be made in the short run, at least at this time. And that's what attracts people in the North. They don't want to deal with this. They want to look away. They're tired of it. They're exhausted from it. Um, second, the federal government's not equipped to do this. Uh, Ulysses Grant, who I talk a lot about in the book, invents this new thing called the Justice Department, which we didn't have. We had an attorney general, but not a Justice Department. We have to invent institutions. There was no FBI then. We have to invent federal institutions. At one point, the federal government, through congressional action, despite Andrew Johnson, President Johnson's uh, resistance, working through the army, the C Congress creates military districts in the South. And it creates military tribunals to supersede local courts that are refusing to prosecute crimes against African-Americans. So the government tries. But our listeners have to remember this is a very different federal government from the one we have today. It doesn't have the institutional basis for this. And if there's ever a case to be made, Zachary, for why we need government, it is this. If you don't have government institutions to enforce the law fairly across the whole nation, you will give cover to those in local communities who want to simply use power to maintain their control. And that's a big part of what happened. So it's Northern Republican interest in other things and uh, frustration and uh, a decision not to invest in this. It's a decision to pull the U.S. Army out. And it's a fundamental recognition of how hard this is. It would have taken a much larger commitment and it would have taken leadership from the North to really continue this uh, effort to enforce the law in parts of the country that were dead set against enforcing the law as such. And I think one important takeaway here um, is that, and it's really where the title of the book comes from, Zachary, the war doesn't end when the traditional battles are over. You've got to maintain the commitment long after the war has, quote, ended at Appomattox if you want to achieve what the war is about. It's very easy and very common to win the war and lose the peace. Yeah, but but amidst this uh, this horror, there is, um, and and you talk about this in the in the book extensively, a, a remarkable resistance and 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 flowering of African American communities uh, across the country. And and you title this chapter "Citizens." Um, how do these courageous individuals offer an alternative citizenship, an alternative to this sort of willingness to look away of Northern Republicans that you see as having? fundamentally failed to keep these promises that they made. I, I think it's the, one of the most remarkable parts of the story, Zachary, and it has so much to teach us today. Former slaves and many of their white supporters, they recognize that citizenship is essential. And what does citizenship mean? It means participation. You cannot change the system if you don't get in and make a difference from within the system. You cannot just fight it from without. You probably have to do a bit of both. 
And they are committed to working their way into the system. And in the early years after Appomattox, a very large number of African-Americans who I talk about in the book are elected to Congress. There's one in the Senate. There are African-Americans elected to state legislatures, especially in the South. And they are working through the system to make their voices heard. They're also building their own communities. This is the predecessor to the Booker T. Washington vision, uh, which we don't appreciate today because separate doesn't seem equal to us. And of course it's not. But Booker T. Washington, who lived through this period, what he recognized was you have to seize citizenship by building your own institutions that can work with the existing institutions, your own businesses your own local governments, in some cases, your own protection forces, your own police. And the African-American community that I talk about in the book and many of their white supporters, they're remarkably stalwart, determined, and courageous in their efforts. Uh, there are stories, countless stories, of African-Americans walking three, four miles to vote, waiting in line for hours and hours. Um, and of course, this doesn't solve the problem, but it makes a huge difference. It also sets a legacy and a model for later activists. Look, let's be clear about it. If you read about this and write about it as I have, you come away realizing that the most important thing we can learn for today is wherever we have an opportunity to participate, we have to participate. We have to force our way to the table if you're being excluded from being at the table. And these communities do this with remarkable bravery. It should also be said uh, that African-American women are, are often providing all of the support for this to happen. That becomes a story all the way through the history of civil rights in the United States, providing the organizational skills, providing the communication, providing the food and clothing. Um, so there really is a community commitment uh, and anyone, these, th these are Grant's words, actually, witnessing this, anyone who doubts the desire for democracy among minorities hasn't actually looked at what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. And, and on that note of, of, of what we can take from this period uh, and, and, and why it matters, um, you, you, you begin your book um, with the insurrection on January 6, 2021, uh, and the first Confederate battle flag in the Capitol Rotunda. Um, and, and why that moment? Why does that moment uh, begin your book? And, and, and is that in some ways a continuation of this civil war by other means? Well, I, I wanted to sink in for everyone that as many Confederate flags as were flown by the Confederacy and then by its apologists uh, thereafter and by people, you know, who love the Dukes of Hazard and other things where, you know, Confederate flags become part of our iconography. There was never a Confederate flag in the capital of the United States until January 6th of 2021, when it was forced in by a group of insurrectionists trying to stop the peaceful transfer of power. That's extraordinary. That tells us how threatening, dangerous, and damaging the events of January 6th, 2021 were. My point in starting there is that this history is not only background, it's foreground to our world. Uh, and I show in the book, not just the Confederate flag and uh, talk about Kevin Seafried, the person who carried it in there. And there's a, an interesting story there for people to read in, in the book, uh, but also the gallows that was created on the Capitol Mall, which was basically a hangman's setup to hang Mike Pence. And it was to do the most 19th century of crimes to lynch someone. Those crimes continue through the 20th century too, but it is a quintessential 19th century post-Civil War crime to lynch a black man who's 
violated the law. Here they wanted to lynch the vice president of the United States. Uh, why do I open with this? Because this shows us clearly, undeniably, that the arguments, the rhetoric, the techniques of the 1870s are alive and well. And they're alive and well because we haven't been able to get them out of our institutions. Most Americans are not repeating the attitudes of the 1870s, but our institutions have provided continued home and protection and have allowed people, some people, to pursue and use those attitudes to weaponize them. And someone like Donald Trump comes along and he empowers that, he encourages that. Uh, and our institutions have not gotten rid of it. Um, the Germans have been thinking about this for a long time. We could learn from the Germans. Susan Nyman, who we had on our podcast, wrote a wonderful book about this. Uh, even if we have changed our attitudes, our institutions carry old attitudes in them, and they require reform to get those old attitudes out. And if those attitudes are allowed to remain in those institutions, they will be deployed by others. What does it mean to say those attitudes are still in there? It is to say that the institutions protect certain kinds of behavior and haven't done enough to prevent those kinds of behavior. What did we see on January 6th, 2021, that paramilitary violence was occurring in our society and organized in our society by the Proud Boys and others? What did we see on January 6th, 2021? People would deploy symbols that we had allowed to linger in our society like the Confederate flag that will mobilize hate? What did we see on January 6, 2021, that uh, demagoguery was still accepted and treated as normal by some parts of our institutions? I'm not arguing uh, for any kind of purge. What I am arguing for is just the opposite, is a serious recognition, a diagnosis of the ways in which the past, some of the darkest and most dangerous parts of our past are alive and well, in our practices, in our institutions, normalized in our behavior. And I'm not for any kind of um, assignment of guilt to any individual because of what happened in the past, but I am for uh, assessing our institutions and how they can be reformed so those elements from the past are not allowed to continue to leach onto them like viruses or like cancerous tumors. And we could start with something like voting. Why is it, and I'm sure we'll talk about this on our next podcast episode, part two, but why is it that we are in some ways the largest, we think, greatest democracy in the world, but yet um, we are a country that has some of the most uh, limited protections for voting? Why is that? Why is that? That's an inheritance from this moment, and why have we not changed that? That's one of many examples that I'm sure you'll want to ask me about next time, Zachary. Certainly, and and I hope all of our listeners will join us next time uh, as we explore this fascinating history uh, in even more depth, um, and then hopefully uh, come up with some, if not solutions, at least paths towards solutions. Uh, so thank but you Zachary, for joining us. But before we close, Zachary, hold on. You didn't have a chance to say what you thought of our uh, discussion and Anything you disagreed with or you want to add to? Because I know you have thoughts on many of the things I talked about. Well, I, I think that your 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 history is is, is certainly uh, very valuable to to all of us, and I think every American should and and must interact with this history if they are to think critically about how how they are and how they act as as citizens. Um, and I think it's a it's a crucial point about our democracy is that. Uh, it's it's fluid and and changing in that uh, we're responsible at every moment, not just for trying to fix it for the future, but uh, remembering 
the mistakes of the past. Uh, and, and in some ways, this is the mistake of American history, if you will. I think a mistake is too weak of a term. This is that moment in history uh, when the American democratic project seems almost uh, a fever dream. And I, I think that it's important for all of us to take ourselves back to that moment and uh, be willing to, to, to see our country in that light, if only for a moment. Well, and it echoes so much of your poem as well. That's really, really wonderful, Zachary. It is such a privilege for me to be able to talk about this with you for our listeners. Uh, I hope people will take a look at the book, uh, Civil War by Other Means, America's Long and Unfinished Fight for Democracy. Uh, and Zachary, you're, you're willing to do part two next week? Yep. You've got more questions? Many more. <laughs> oh, I'm sure you do. Thank you, Zachary, for being such a wonderful partner. Congratulations again on thank being uh, Austin Youth Poet Laureate. And congratulations on the book. Thank you. And thank you most of all to our listeners for joining us for this week of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This Is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.